Thank you, John. I think I'll sit rather than stand up as we are just a very cozy uh, group. Is that okay? Right. First of all, thank you. And I, I'm unfortunately no longer at Girton. That was purely a six-month uh, sort of engagement, but it was great, and and, and it did help me uh, quite a bit. But um, I'm um, more or less attached to uh, the Trade Union Forum and King's College as as a visiting. Uh, Fellow, but um, the purpose of the session and the overall session was to show the the legal framework governing trade unions how it evolved in Britain uh, to provide a necessary historical perspective. Because all too often, the uh, past is known about, but it isn't quite uh, inform doesn't quite inform the future at all, if it ever can. But uh, I have had a personal interest in the combination laws going back 40 years, when I was a young official in the Transport and General Workers Union, purely as a hobby. And I even wrote a paper at one time about the combination laws. I'm still not certain exactly what they were about or what exactly happened. And many scholars I know uh, still argue the toss over that. But I, I did, in fact, do a PhD part-time while I was still working uh, on the first group to be done under the combination laws, i.e. the millwrights, the London journeyman millwrights. And I'm going to talk a bit about those in the course of it to illustrate my, my arguments. Um, so, but more importantly, perhaps, is that in the course of that career with both the TNG and the NCU stroke CWU, I was not just a legal officer, but also a balloting officer when Mrs. Thatcher introduced uh, balloting laws in the 80s. And I remember saying that uh, she had created my job specification because we were probably one of the most militant unions, certainly in, in the CWU, the postal side, of all unions. But also there was a wonderful spread of experience there. Uh, in, the, in the TNG, 11 trade groups, sorry, 14 trade groups, 11 regions, every conceivable trade group from clerical across to docks, engineering, almost. And so it was a wonderful experience to have to advise and, 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 and deal with issues that arose in, in, that, in that situation. And, and I, I learned most of my law, industrial law, in the course of that career. So we come on to the combination laws. Um, if I can move this along. We should go right into it. And you notice the title, the Workmen's Compensation Act. Everything was workmen in those days, of course. But um, the actual background to this, I think, is quite interesting. Because on, on, the on the face of it, it was perhaps the most draconian piece of legislation that's ever appeared on the British statute books. It banned, without exception, all um, journeyman trade clubs, as they were called then. Uh, all but workmen's combinations, and it removed the right of trial by jury, which was the glory of English law, according to Blackstone commentaries on the laws of England, um, and replaced it with a hearing before one magistrate who could, in fact, be interested in the issue, and often was. Uh, but the, the, the soft side of it was that it reduced the penalties um, which could be imposed from perhaps up to seven years in, under the common law to three months. And the idea was this was a, an idea which the master millwrights wanted because they said they couldn't get hold of their journeymen. 
they used their tramping network, they used their uh, muffins to spirit away any guys involved in disputes. And so by the time you'd got the common law um, indictment process operational, they were gone. And so it wasn't, it wasn't just that. But So that was the law that was introduced uh, by William Pitt in 1799. It started with the Millwrights Bill. And the, and the interesting about that was that it wasn't just the masters who brought that. There were over uh, there was a petition by over 88 uh, brewers, distillers, manufacturers of all kinds in London, who were calling for the annihilation of the Journeyman Millwrights Trade Club. And it was that atmosphere, that industrial atmosphere. We'll come on to the political atmosphere, that led on very quickly. Who should get up in the course of that debate on the Millwrights? But William Wilberforce, the famous anti-slavery MP, who was the MP for Yorkshire, was then a hotbed of uh, trade union activity amongst the croppers, the, 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 the woolen croppers, uh, shearers, as they were called. And so Pitt himself referred to the combinations of the North as the problem. And of course, Wilberforce described them as a, a general disease for which a general remedy was required, not just to uh, obliterate this pest, but in fact that it would never return. And so literally days after Wilberforce uh, rose, and he was a great friend, of course, of Pitt's, Pitt came forward with a bill, um, which they, they, they took off the peg, more or less, from a previous bill that had been carried against the papermakers in 1796. But, um, there was hardly any reaction from the, the journeyman. Scarcely a petition. And London, you can imagine, they would have known about it, and it would have normally have been panic. But this bill rammed through without opposition. The, the Whigs at the time were were, were um, staying away from the Parliament. But uh, the only two, only two, uh, Lord Holland and somebody else in the Lords, raised the question of the, the removal of trial by jury and the, 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 the sort of implications for that. But it was brushed aside, and the bill became law in June, July uh, 1799. About three months later, there was a reaction, and a lot of clubs protested. And the opposition was back. Sheridan was the, the leader of the Whigs uh, at the time, and, and others. And they, 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 they made a big fuss about the liberal, liberality, but they didn't actually object to the principle of um, banning trade unions or trade clubs. They said that that had been an established practice under the common law. They were illegal at common law, and therefore this was merely uh, a modification of the thing. And so Pitt himself, interestingly, he got up and he said, I can't quite remember <laughs> what it was we did last year, <laughs> you know, what, what the details of the thing were. That was how, how central he was to the thing. So um, they, they modified the bill. They actually made it so that the act, so that you had to have two magistrates and they couldn't be involved in the trade. They also introduced uh, a voluntary arbitration clause and other so, so the 1800 act which actually came into being was um, a different bill a different act but it was nevertheless in substance the same 
I mentioned the common law, and I think that in understanding British law, uh, there are two sides to it. There, are, there is the common law, i.e. judicial, judge-made law, and particularly the law of conspiracy, which would, had been evolved entirely by the judges against um, anybody who entered an agreement <coughs> to raise their wages. The, the, it was the agreement that was the conspiracy. So that buttressed the law for centuries, even though it hadn't been invoked. And of course, when it was invoked, the penalties were severe, up to seven years <coughs> imprisonment. Um, there was one case in 1810 involving the Times compositors who actually were sent to prison for two years. And that was a, a fairly common raid for the thing. But the interesting thing about the combination laws was however ferocious they were, they were hardly ever enforced. Very little evidence on the statute books of the law. They were used, obviously, occasionally in, in disputes, but very, very rarely um, would they be used. What's interesting, I think, is that when we look back at those times, the journeymen, the artisans, this wasn't you know, the working class. This, these, group, these were a group of very important um, citizens who were associated, uh, particularly in, in, in the old corporate towns and cities like London, going back to the guilds. They had all the ceremonial, they had all the secrecy, and so on. And they, they were by no means um, a, a poor group. But more importantly, I think the, the real important issue, and it's the issue which the master millwrights raised in, 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 in particular, they said that they issued a statement of facts to the Privy Council, which was then like the Privy Council of the King, important body. They said that the journeyman's trade club aimed at regulation not only of the journeymen, but of the master millwrights and of the trade itself, and that they had exercised a complete control over their masters. So far from being just a, a downtrodden group, by and large, the, the, the journeymen, right since the 17th century, particularly in the towns, had established freedom of association in Britain, uh, which is, I think, a very important concept that we hold on to. It's a very deep tradition which has been forgotten in the course of uh, um, time. So that's the, um, these are the millwrights, just to give an idea of what the hell they were. They're today's engineers, you could say, but in fact, far from it, they were a group of seven-year apprenticeships, um, very tight, uh, they wouldn't work with an ordinary worker. That this was, they wore top hats and swallow coats to work and, and all that sort of thing. But there they are, you see them. They worked in the breweries, they worked in the distilleries, they worked anywhere there was machinery of that time, wooden machinery. They were the experts, and so they knew it. And they had a firm grip, I think, on that trade. Um, here's a, another example of their, their rule book. And these rule books carried right through. Um, through to, to the 19th, 20th century. 1801, printed. That's what they thought of the law. They were prepared to print a set of rules um, governing their regulations, and it runs the 26, 26 rules, uh, including and particularly apprenticeship, seven-year apprenticeship requirement to join this club. And the, the subscriptions were high, the benefits were high. It was a very, very, very um, tight 
uh, club. So um, I think that um, I wanted to stress that point, that, for instance, they could offer themselves, they could offer journeymen directly to, to gentlemen or, or manufacturers. They didn't need the masters, and frequently during disputes did precisely that. Um, they um, had a sizable fund, and the, the, the bill that was brought against them was to cover not just London, not just the metropolis, but 25 miles around. And so that was the the um, pitch that the masters um, were up against. But as far as the um, journeymen themselves were concerned, they were more interested in the apprenticeship laws, and these were, these were repealed in 1813, and that really was what, what undermined them. I'll move on in terms of time. So we'll come to the repeal of the combination laws. As I say, by, by, by the end of the Napoleonic War, French wars, uh, the combination laws were pretty much a dead letter uh, in, in, in so far as that they had the, the establishment hadn't sort of used them effect very, very strongly. And in fact, the climate was changing, particularly with Peterloo and that. The climate was changing uh, amongst the middle class, amongst the, the industrial classes even. And so that at a certain point, a group of, of liberals, radicals, Benthamites, uh, they were the ones who actually decided to push for or repeal the combination, not the journeymen. So we come to 1824, and in fact, the famous story of Francis Place, the, the, the shoemaker, or not shoemaker, tailor, who had himself been a journeyman, but now an employer. He was, he in fact, together with the um, Joseph Hume, MP, and others, they uh, manoeuvred a bill through the Parliament with the assistance, in fact, of the government. William Huskisson was the Board of Trade uh, Chair. And so th th there was hardly any opposition in the Parliament. At that time, they'd, they, they were moving to this free trade concept. And so the combination laws were repealed. Interestingly, in 1824 Act, they also repealed the common law. It was almost un unheard of before. They removed the common law, uh, and, and it was a stroke, because the government had never intended that. And so you had a rash of strikes, clamor from the employers to restore the combination laws. The government didn't do that. They actually kept um, the, uh, the removal of the ban, but they tightened up on areas, particularly involving strikes, uh, where issues like threats and intimidation, molesty, these were all tightly, tightly controlled into the future. But the 1825 Act was the basis of labor law for the next 50 years. It was that piece of legislation which continued. Uh, but also, the judges retained that reserve power to intervene, and did intervene periodically, they had developed this doctrine of in restraint of trade. And so if you broke a contract in the course of a strike, you, that was a conspiracy if you did it in agreement with others. And so uh, you were still liable to prosecution uh, in, under the common law. Ah, uh, this is um, my picture of Marx on a pub crawl. <laughs> 
from Hampstead to Tottenham Court Road. But he, he's, there's a famous line in, in Capital where he says, the barbarous laws against trade unions fell in 1825. True. Before the threatening bearing of the proletariat. Now, of course, there wasn't any proletariat. And there wasn't the group, the artisanate, weren't threatening. So that's why I said this was after a good drink between that he, he um, came to that conclusion. But in fact, it's important because in categorizing the period, we should remember who were being involved. We're talking about the trade clubs, particularly. And um, they were small local organizations, by and large. Um, without any national connection, and it was the it was the apprenticeship laws that they were really uh, concerned about. Moving on, yes, this is one of my favourite pictures from the the Tolpuddle demonstration at uh, the Islington Copenhagen Fields in April uh, 1834, and it's. The, 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 as a result of the, the demonstrations like this, the Tolpuddle Martels were in fact brought back and uh, exonerated. But what I want you to see is, if you can, is the, the regalia and the, rega the, the get out of, of the. These were no sort of poor working class types. This was the old artisans. Uh, plus others, obviously, l large middle class impact as well, some laborers and stuff. But that was how they, they were part of the order, of the old order. And this was the order which was being swept away by the new em emerging capitalism. This was the order that the, 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 the um, Chartists protested against. But by the 1840s, they were gone. They were gone, and, and in, in terms of, there wasn't a trade union, and in fact, the name trade union still hadn't come into common parlance. And it was, in fact, I'm taking you right on to 1871, the Charter of British Trade Unions. This is the title that they used to talk about in the TUC. Uh, Sir Walter Citrine, published in 1942, during the war. And he referred to it in those terms. And he referred to the three trade union leaders, particularly. Um, there was uh, William Allen, of course, of the ASE. That's the Amalgamated Society of Engineers. Uh, Robert Applegarth, who was the uh, carpenters and joiners. And George Howell, who was, in fact, very interested in the law as well and may wrote, a lot, wrote a lot of books. These were the guys who. Uh, between the 1860s and the 1870s, put together a lobby to repeat, to reform the the law as it stood, to give the unions more protection, to give their funds more protection, and they were up against it, because the Earl Commission, which was set up in 1864 by a with a Supreme Court judge, was intent on, in fact, shackling the unions again. There had been some outrages in a dispute in Sheffield. And so the public uh, attitude, public opinion then being middle class opinion, of course, was very much uh, about doing over the unions again. Whereas they came along and they made, gave evidence to show what a stabilizing influence the unions were. And that far from the image of being constantly at strike and constantly a problem, they were rarely so. And in fact, 
they had inculcated, this is a very Victorian concept, they were inculcating principles of thrift and self-help amongst, obviously, still the skilled workers uh, of that time. And uh, we're talking about quarter of a million, quarter of a million uh, trade unionists at that time, growing to about a million by the 1880s. But this is what the two, uh, the two pieces of legislation, uh, there was a number of others, Trade Union Act 1871 and the Conspiracy and Protection of Property Act 1875. These were um, the bedrock of that trade union chapter. Um, it repealed the 1825 Act completely. Um, and then no trade combination uh, would be indictable for a conspiracy. They were no longer unlawful societies in restraint of trade. Uh, they would not be regarded as corporate bodies, even though they were aggregate corporate corporations, because they didn't want to be, because that would have le let them open to prosecution. Uh, but their collective agreements, of course, were unenforceable. And they had some protection from embezzlement by officers of the funds. And so it's quite a, it, was, it was quite a major change around. It, it, it really, not 1906, 1871 to 1876, that was when the bedrock of the trade legislation was actually formed. And, and it's, it coincided with the period of the emergence of trade unions. It was a new type of combination. They inherited the spirit of association and the rule books often, and they built extremely strong organizations, not just on a local basis, but on a national basis, amalgamations, federations. They linked, linked up Glasgow to London, Liverpool to Exeter, and, and so on. And, and these bodies became a power in the industry, certainly. But the difference between their position and that of the journeyman trade clubs was that they accepted the system. The trade clubs actually believed that it was their labor that created all the wealth, and therefore they were entitled to the lion's share of it. Whereas the new trade unions, and they were still skilled workers, um, had to, they were under the control of the employer, there was no doubt about it. You were in their factory, you were controlled by their rules. They had to agree, if they would agree, what you achieved. And in 1868, of course, they created the TUC which was to coordinate and lobby for reform, which they did so successfully in that piece of legislation. So that takes us on. This is the badge of the Amalgamated Society of Engineers, machinists, millwrights, smiths, and pattern makers, the core of the industrial industry. They had 5,000 to begin with, 1851. They had about 60,000 by the time we're talking about. Other unions uh, we mentioned, the carpenters and joiners and so on. I recall this one, the return of the Judai. Because, of course, we're now into the 1880s, when the general workers are starting to stir and starting to become trade unionists, the docker strikes, the gas workers, and so on. But the judges uh, became, again, very twitchy as regards disputes, as regards strikes, as regards violence on picket lines. Because you're now dealing with a body mass much larger, a group of people who, when energized by a union, in dispute, 
these were industrial wars. These were not uh, sort of uh, talk, talk shops. And so the law felt it needed to impose itself particularly uh, and regulate. And what they did was they devised a new doctrine, not uh, criminal conspiracy, but civil conspiracy. In other words, interfering with a contract, a tort, a, a civil wrong. And that continued, uh, continues today. The, the doctrine of tortious liability became one of the, and I'm sure Adrian will take us to the detail of all that. But I think that we, um, we see now, by, by the 1990s, by the late 1990s, and certainly by 1901, with the Taft fail judgment, uh, the, the whole basis of the 1871 legislation has been undermined by the judiciary. They have turned it upside down. And they've established a new doctrine of civil conspiracy. And in fact, at the time, Sidney Webb, who wrote his book, famous book, History of Trade Unionism, and the industrial democracy, 1890s, and then edition of 1901, he said, well, we'll have to accept this, by and large. Yes, we can go for reforms. He sat on a commission in 1903, which came back with um, not an awful lot can be done, apart from some changes, because this is now the law. This I like. This is a picture from Citrine's book. And it was done about for the 1830s. This was the image of the trade unions, a rowdy bunch indisciplined, liable to go off. Uh, and I think it captures the image, a very different image from the one in the Copenhagen fields. And that's, we've had this uh, contrast in British society all the time. The images that we have, that we portray, are often um, very negative or very positive, depending on who's, who's wanting to, to show them. So taking us on to the Trade Disputes Act 1906, um, which was amazing that it, it, the politics of it are even more remarkable than the, than the act itself, because no one was in favour of it. The top brass of the Liberal Party, Haldane and the guy who became Prime Minister later, Campbell Bannon, Asquith. No, not, no, no. Asquith. Asquith, were dead against it. Campbell Bannerman, however, an old-style Whig, he was persuaded by the TUC not just to go for m modest immunity, but the whole bang, the whole lot. And so you had, of course, uh, after the successful general election of, of 1906, you had 20 Labour MPs, you had about 30 Lib Lab MPs as well. You had, sorry, about 30 Labour MPs and about 20 Lib Lab MPs. They had a big influence. You had the Irish nationalists who had then 80, 90 MPs. And so even though the Liberal government had a majority, it was persuaded to go the whole hog. And so it overturned the infamous 1901 Taft fail judgment, which made unions open to heavy penalties for the actions of their servants. It was a massive rebuff to the judges. And it, it more or less said officially, you have misinterpreted the 1871-76 legislation. And they, they were cowed by, by, by it to an extent, so, uh, so far as the judges ever are. Um, they removed their doctrines of civil conspiracy, tortious liability for breaches of contract, and it reaffirmed the legality of peaceful picketing and sympathetic, and sympathetic strikes as well. So union funds again protected. This was, this was um, a restoration of the 1871 legislation with a vengeance. And it was and lasted 
up until the 1970s. So it was a major um, triumph for the trade union. So I come on then to my conclusions. Um, the first one, I think, uh, we always tend to look at the negatives. And we think of the period of struggle, the period of downtrodden depression. This was a period of the triumph of the spirit of association in Britain. Going back to the 18th, 17th centuries even. And it, the magnificent journey, Francis William once called it. But there's no question that it established in Britain and throughout the world, throughout the empire, and certainly large parts where, where wherever trade union workers went, the concept of trade unionism, freedom of association for working people. Now, this is where I have some hesitations. The absolute uh, immunity path we, we went down because of the common law bias. We just didn't want the judges to have anything to do with industrial decisions. Understandably, that remains to this day. But I'm afraid it's going to be very hard to escape it, given the centrality since the Act of Settlement of the judicial role in British constitution. I think that we're going to have to come to terms with that and think, think through how we can, in fact, uh, develop a, a sustainable framework. And again, I, I, I use this, any sustainable legal framework which we'll be discussing here today must address the common law also. I think that's, that's the critical. So th that's, that's it, uh, basically. I hope that sets the scene in terms of where we were. Now you tell us where we're going to. And nice pictures too. <laughs> Very nice pictures.